Good morning, Mel. How are you? Morning. Uh, tired. <laughs> yeah, right. It's been a long night. Did you stay up for uh, by-election corner, in fact? Thank you very much. Yeah, for I did. I, for a variety I, of reasons. Yeah, I sort of drifted in and out of snoozing, but yeah, I stayed up for the result. Were you surprised by the effectiveness of what uh, the strategist called the moonshot? Called the what? The moonshot, I think. I mean, the sort of the uh, the, the the odds were, were not being uh, sort of overstated by by um, uh, any means, even by the wily Pat McFadden of, of the Labour oh, double victory. You yeah. always try to manage expectations in by-elections so then if it goes against you you say yeah we weren't really expecting to do any better and if you win then oh this is much better than our wildest dreams they were huge swings so in the labor mid Bedfordshire was interesting being a you know very close to a three-way marginal i think the lib dems have made themselves look a bit foolish by their sort of usual claims only the lib dems can win here uh and then finishing in a not a very distant third, but a very definite third there. Um, but in both cases, you know, swings in the in the sort of high twenty percent, uh, mid to high twenty percent. The uh, one of these uh, quite fun but rather meaningless calculations that based on the Tamworth swing, the Tories will be down to twenty seats the next election. That's extraordinary. It does sound rather so like one wheel on the wagon. Yeah, I mean they're quite. They 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 don't mean anything. I, I, my strong suspicion is both of these seats will return to the Conservatives in the next election. But uh, it's still a uh, after the the, the, the latest um, Sunak relaunch at the uh, party conference and telling us all that he was the change candidate. And people say well, we quite like a bit of change. Please, can you move away and, and let somebody else have a go? Hmm. Now, I mean, the, the curious thing is that Tamworth has been a bellwether since at least 96, and it has swung in both directions quite dramatically. Why should that be the case, do you think? I don't know. I mean, I don't know that area of, of, of Staffordshire all that well, but it, it clearly I mean, it was. We should bear in mind that it was uh, um, Labour until 2010, until the end of the Blair Brown years. Hmm. Um, and it was one of those, and there's a few of them. Mansfield's another one, which have, you know, been if not uh, Mansfield was traditional Labour territory, a former mining town in in, in Derbyshire, um, and has a, an absolutely enormous Conservative majority now. It's uh, uh, typical. Yeah, it was one of the sort of prototype Red Wall seats before Red Wall became a thing, um, and so it's. Uh, it's interesting the how seats can swing, and of course the, the conservative seats in the past, like Crosby, uh, which uh, in in uh, Merseyside, which was uh, won by Shirley Williams for the SDP mm. in a by election, but had been pretty solid conservative. Uh, now conservatives just nowhere to be seen there. Uh, there you think of uh, Sheffield Callum, which was uh, the seat that. Uh, um, Nick Clegg won for the Lib Dems. That was pretty solid Conservative. Traditionally, now uh, the uh, Conservatives nowhere to be seen. And, of course, right the way across London with uh, local authorities, which have been Conservative for years. I guess Westminster is is probably the most uh, dramatic, but uh, Conservatives disappearing in places like Richmond and and uh, 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 Redbridge and uh, Kingston and places which they've They've run in, in, you know, within recent memory. 
um, and ones which are always a bit of a special case. Uh, so, yeah, it is interesting how once uh, people get used to voting a particular way, then the the nature of seats can change very dramatically. Um, London was never it was never the case that areas like Hackney were were solid Labour in London. They regularly returned Conservatives uh, a century ago or more. Mm. I suppose the two candidates, certainly the current one, Andrew Cooper, had sort of blotted his copybook on social media some time ago with the scatology about the the low paid, which he tried to retract, but perhaps not to very great effect. And then the legend that was Nadine Doris taking, you know, um, half a year to resign or thereabouts. So they, 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 are these two uh, results, as it were, exceptional for those kinds of reasons? Well, um, I, I actually think the Conservative candidate in Mid-Bevature was, was, seemed rather effective and, and uh, may, uh, he may uh, reemerge. He ran a close second, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. And well, they, Mid-Bevature was peculiar because the, the split of the anti, in most, of the by-elections recently, it has been very obvious which the contender was. And Tamworth's an example. The Dems are absolutely nowhere in Tamworth. Mm. It was clearly, uh, if it was going to be overturned, it was Labour that was going to do it. And I think everybody who who went out primarily to defeat the Tories knew that and knew it was Labour to vote for. The the interesting thing in Bedfordshire was that it was quite late in the day that... Uh, People, I think, recognised the Labour were the main contender. And the, the Lib Dem vote did go up by 10 percentage points. Uh, to the extent, you know, it was only an 1,100 majority. The, um, the, they almost, the Tories almost came through the middle uh, uh, in in uh, mid-Bedfordshire, which was something that they, you know, the bookies and others had been speculating on. What you might have expected, um, I guess, yeah. yeah. So, so there, I think, Lib Dems with the... Uh, Always sort of slightly inflated claims in in these sorts of violations, which turn out sometimes to be true and sometimes to be nonsense. But they were nonsense in this case; they were the only ones who could beat the Tories. Um, so I guess some people were still not quite sure tactically which way to vote in in mid uh, uh, Bedfordshire. I, funnily enough, uh, Andrew Cooper in in Tamworth, I think, was. Uh, was such a hostage to fortune, given that mm. it was only three years ago that he was he was uh, making these comments about uh, what should happen to people who can't feel uh, feed their children, and and actually uh, a point he was making, which is not very kind, but it does have some merit, is that um, parents ought to consider feeding their children before they uh, buy uh, expensive phones or 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 other. You know, other things they could possibly do without. So it's not it's not an absolutely outrageous uh, point, but the way that uh, it was made was was awful. This was only in twenty twenty. It wasn't as if it was mm. you know back in the in the the mists of a, of a, an early adolescent. Um, and, and if you were Lee Anderson or Jonathan Gallis, you've been talking in those in that manner quite recently. Well, yes, indeed, and that's the <laughs> the, 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 the the decline in. Decent language being used by some parts of the Conservative Party. Yeah, but yeah. I do wonder whether there'll be some in Tamworth who are on the on the Conservative side who are kind of thinking, "Oh, good, we don't have to have this. Yeah, we can we can have a new selection for next year's uh, general election in Tamworth and pick a candidate who's not going to cause those sorts of uh, there must problems." Be somewhere out there, somewhere. <laughs> that gentle laughter over, yond- over yonder is the return of Leonie Cooper uh, with the egg. Are you feeling better, my dear? 
I'm feeling much better, but I wouldn't say I was, I wouldn't say I'm completely well, though. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Mel stayed up for the long night in the by-election. What's your reaction to all this? Well, I thought the uh, the two results were interesting. I thought the fact that the Liberal Democrat vote was completely, uh, well, I mean, they were in sixth place in Tamworth. Uh, shows, I, six, th- some would say, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think I think that shows though that um uh, and the and the parties that came above them I think were all sort of fairly Brexit orientated. And of course them, yeah there was um there was UKIP actually was still there. Um uh, reform and also Britain first. Um so there you know I think there's still quite a sort of strong right leaning element in the constituency and or Brexit leaning, not necessarily exactly the same thing. Um, just listening to what Malcolm was saying about Andrew Cooper, if he'd won, of course, he could have become Lee Anderson's sidekick um, in modern. Well, uh, the kid. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, you know the uh, the Tory Party chairman. So they're obviously up for that kind of language in the Conservative Party. So he seems quite a suitable by-election candidate in that sense. Um, I thought the result in mid beds in some ways um was possibly even better although the swing to labor was um slightly smaller um just because there was um much more of a a showing by the liberal democrats um and labor saw off not just the conservatives but also the liberal democrats who for months have been very rude about the Labour candidate, so oh, you know, we're the challenger to the government in eighty seats and all this stuff. No, they were definitely knocking Labour, the Liberal Democrats, um, and uh, they did get a vote, but they were unable to win. So I think it, I think it will demonstrate to people that whether it's a, a seat where people were strongly in favour of Brexit that Labour can win there, or whether it's a seat where the Liberal Democrats are making. Uh, ridiculous claims for months on end about they're the only people who can defeat the Conservatives, that Labour can win there. I think I think both results together, along with Selby and HD and with Rutherglen and Hamilton West, you know, they're all swings of more than 20% to Labour. Um, I think they're I think they're very a very interesting set of four results. And there's also been some by-elections in some um uh, some council seats and parish council seats where the Conservatives didn't do very well, not necessarily because Labour was beating them in those seats, but I think overall it was a very, very, very bad night for the Conservatives. Hmm. In some of the swings, there was there was three um, upper tier seats up, uh, one in, in Warwickshire and two in Worcestershire, in Worcester City. Um, and the swings there were, were in the 30% range away from the Conservatives. The Lib Dems yeah. took a uh, a seat on Warwick County <laughs> Council, and uh, in Worcestershire, it was the Greens who who beat uh, uh, the Conservatives both in the County Council seat in, in Worcester and the, and the Worcester District Council seat, Worcester City Council seat. Sorry, um, and so yeah, those you know indications there because Worcester is is now Labour led. Um, it, it's uh, so you know it's good territory for the Labour, but it's still showing that. That I think there is a an appetite for for tactical voting um, against the Conservatives, and that, of course, will be an extra factor on top of national opinion polls, because national opinion polls don't reflect that in an individual seat, uh, people who would naturally vote 
I don't know, Lib Dem or naturally vote Labour may lend their vote to the to the other challenger or Greens. Yeah, Greens are the challengers in, in two or three seats, uh, may lend their votes for that, but would would normally regard themselves still as Labour or Lib Dem uh, voters. And that's a, another potential factor that could cause uh, difficulties for the uh, Conservatives. So I'm sure my suspicion is that, that the uh, Labour you know, high com- command will be pretty happy with, with the last two or three weeks uh, of the results. Uh, Tories, I think, will be increasingly worried about it. And the other parties just sort of, you know, steady as she goes, we're happy enough with these uh, results, we're going to keep pushing. Mm. One of the things young Alistair said in his acceptance speech in, in Medbeds was the fact that the area was, was neglected, which really surprised me because not so long ago, London estate agencies uh, were referring to this place as the, a slightly cheaper uh, alternative territory as L- North Londonshire, if I remember rightly. Uh, and yet levelling up seems to have gone nowhere as close to London as Mid-Bedfordshire. And if you think about the prospects for a place like Worcester, which I think is dominated by the the, the cider industry, which I think has been, has been on somewhat a hard times in recent years with export difficulties and Brexit and stuff. Um, where has levelling up gone? And uh, I suppose more broadly, where might the Tories start to dust themselves down in this situation or can they be bothered? Mm, I'm not sure he meant neglected in quite the sense of the, the wider sense of neglect. I think ah. he meant neglected by uh, their previous MP oh, who, was do- who was doing things like I think he was I think he was trying to mention uh, Nadine without actually mentioning Nadine Doris um, you know well, all how, struck, how many, presumably. Yeah, yeah. Um, how many weeks did she go off and spend in I'm a celebrity get me out of here in the jungle she she apparently hasn't done surgeries in the constituency for at least the last two years the local one Not of the even local, wearing a solar tope. Yep. One of one of the local um, conservative associations in Flitwick um, ah. <clears throat> apparently um, put in a complaint and then publicised it, saying they wanted her to stand down and why didn't she just go away? Because they hadn't seen her for for months and months and years. So, I mean, if your local one of your local conservative associations is saying they haven't seen you and that you're neglecting them, I think I think that's a pretty sure sign that uh, Nadine Doris was done with mid beds some years ago, but of course got re-elected in 2019 and was then prancing around being part of the government for some some time. I mean, she is the most ghastly woman. Um, and I don't blame people in mid-beds for uh, not wanting to replace someone that they've hardly seen and who's not done them any favours at all, not done any of us any favours, um, with someone who, you know, has pledged to work hard and to be there for them. Mm. I think that's the neglect he was referring to, Andy. Oh, right. OK. Well, um, but... it's, a cold, it's a cold reading as well. Which Which newly elected... Labour MP is going to get up and say, you know, the Tories have really looked after this place. It's been brilliant here. We've been, we've been properly looked after. It's, it's, uh, it's kind of a cold reading that you get up there and say, this proves that the Tories have turned their back on, on this area. But to, be, to, to be fair, to be fair, to be fair, come on, indeed, Doris, if she really hasn't been seen there for two years, and even the local Conservatives are moaning about it, I think that's a different level, isn't it, Malcolm? Yeah, I, I wonder to what extent. I mean, they, they, I wonder to what extent there was a Doris fact there. The, the, the Conservative <coughs> candidate seemed seemed a good guy, and I suspect he'll probably be seen be seen again. He he was, yeah, you know, contrasting to Andrew Cooper. 
But I think it was a. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure. Uh, I suspect the Doris thing probably didn't didn't help. But the. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. It, it is worth reflecting. This is the biggest majority that's been overturned in a by-election since the war. So, you know, I don't know, perhaps the Doris factor wasn't particularly important here. I think also the two-on-one night must be quite a special thing. I don't know what the, you know, when did Labour last win two by-elections on the same night with swings of more than 20%. I mean, that might be a record since the beginning of time, not just since 1945. I mean, I can't think of a night where that's happened before. Yeah, not, they weren't... Yeah, in some ways they were quite similar seats in yeah both the you know, conservative majorities of around twenty thousand plus or minus and um, the the demographics of the two seats were not I mean, not actually geographically all that far away from each other um, but demographics were there so so similar swings in the two seats would is maybe not particularly uh, 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 unexpected. Um, clearly, you know, the Rutherglen and Hamilton West seat was dramatically different from from either of these seats. And uh, but the fact that Labour's picked up all three of them, I think, will be will be a just you know, a, a sign that that not that the Labour have won yet, but that there's there's nothing to be worried about in those three by-election results. I don't think for Labour. Mm. Um, this week, the Resolution Foundation has pointed out the government debt uh, is at a three hundred year high. Um, it's tripled its ratio to gross domestic product. So, uh, should Starmer come in, he's uh, as he's referred to in his speeches, he's going to have to be at the very least economically prudent, isn't he? I mean, how do we dig our way out of that one? And how would Sunak make any noises about doing so? I mean, indeed, he has as one of his five uh, um, elusive pledges, hasn't he? We've talked about so we've talked about this before. The the how almost the traditional roles of the parties are reversed. The the normal pattern, which uh, yeah, we get the Tories in because the economy is in a bit of a weak state, and they uh, you know take some very difficult and, and unpleasant spending decisions and get the economy back on an even keel. And then we decide right, they've been in long enough, and it's time we started to rediscover our our hearts and start putting some of this money into yeah, yeah. people who need it. So we get Labour in for a while to do that. And then uh, Labour uh, Labour always sort of hits financial crisis by the end of its time in government and or financial difficulties. So back them in the Tories to sort out the economy again. Um, and Starmer's going to, not going to be able to do that. He's going to be coming in with to a stage, assuming he wins next year, that that is very, very difficult economically. While on the other hand, the Tories have been running a you know, tax and spend regime that uh, Labour shadow chancellors could only have dreamt about a decade or so uh, ago. And to be fair to the Tories, and it is important just really to remember that there's been a string of, firstly, the subprime crisis that wasn't really the UK's fault. Uh, it happened towards the end of the, the Blair Brown years. But... Uh, um, that was an international crisis that, that Britain, like everywhere else, got engulfed, uh, but basically an American crisis that, that engulfed the rest of the uh, the world. And then, of course, uh, COVID, the, the big one, and we've got the COVID inquiry is open now, and it's going to be interesting to see how, I think the interesting thing is to see how forthright it's going to be about what looks pretty clear with, with some major um, miscalculations, if not outright dishonesty is going on and then ukraine which has uh you know run coaching horses through energy and food 
uh, and and cause enormous uh, global issues from that point of view. So the that needs to be borne uh, in in mind when we look at the the level of national debt. You know what what else could the governments have done during COVID apart from something like furlough? Uh, but but nonetheless, it's we we do have you know, the Tories without a. Uh, and and with you know international interest rates going going up, uh, then the size of the national debt becomes much much more important. When when international interest rates are low, uh, you can run you know quite a big national debt, and it's not all that expensive. But if interest rates start to shoot up significantly, and your current you know arrangements for dealing with that debt come to an end, you have to renegotiate. And at that stage, uh, national debt becomes really terribly serious. Hmm. I wonder if there's any comparison with the Labour government that came in in 45 after the Second War. I mean, it's not exactly a war that's been being fought here, although there are, uh, there are not proxy wars, there are wars in which we have at least a tangential involvement on at least two fronts uh, right now um, with associated capital expenditure. Um, and is there, is there an analogy there in terms of uh, the mop-up job that was done then and, and how it would need to be done now? Well, we sometimes, you know, forget just how how quickly the Affley government ran out of electoral steam. They had this, uh, you know, bone crushing uh, majority landslide in, in 1945, which was on the back of, you know, a sense that, uh, you know, we do want this to be a land fit for heroes. We need to, uh, and Churchill, who was, you know, regarded by the country as a great wartime leader, but uh, and, and rightly so, but but. <laughs> wasn't thought to be the right person to then make sure that the, the country you know gets the rewards for what it went through during the war but uh, the Athlete government's only lasted one full term and a little bit afterwards in 1950 general election it was very very close indeed then Athlete went to the polls in 51 to try and increase his majority to to something that was more workable and and lost and and Churchill took the premiership again um, the only you know, Labour government, well, Wilson was very successful, won four out of five elections that he fought. Um, so in the Wilson years between 1970 and, and uh, uh, 1986, I think, when he stood, uh, uh, sorry, 1964 and 1976 when he stood down, he was he was a very successful leader through that time. But really it's only the Blair Brown years where there have been a very solid three-term Labour majority. Uh, and uh, I don't know, Blair was coming in in, in, uh, in 87 to an economy that had, uh, was really in, in a pretty good state. The, uh, much as we might, uh, sorry, 97, uh, much as we might, uh, yeah, I think John Major's reputation has been, uh, has, has improved considerably in recent years. But actually, uh, Major and Ken Clark, who was the Chancellor at the time, did bequeath a very strong mm. economy to Labour in 1997. Uh, uh, um, that's not going to be the case next year. Mm. Graham's joining us. Good morning. We're just reacting and um, to um, um, hearkening a bit to the historical perspective to the uh, double whammy Labour win. Well, what are your thoughts about that? Um, well, it shows that people are looking at reality a bit, I suppose. <clears throat> but um, there's good news, yeah. I suppose, what do they do for an encore? They're clearly riding high in the polls, but the, the economy is, is looking pretty dire in terms of uh, 
the uh, stubborn um, um, altitude of inflation at the moment, and indeed the amount of debt that we have. And we were wondering if there was an analogy with 45. I think they yeah, might have a chance. Might have a chance for an encore because haven't they just uh, given Peter Bone a huge piece of criticism in the Commons and some huge suspension, and somebody else? I mean, there might be two more by-elections coming. Um, I'm beginning to feel like Brenda in Bristol. Oh no, not another one. <laughs> but there uh, might be there might be another two coming. Sorry, sorry, Graham, you were going to say something. It's what's what's also interesting there is that is that parts of Essex have migrated to Bristol overnight. I mean, that's uncanny. <laughs> Beautifully I, I, I don't think I don't think you want to hear my uh, my Bristol accent. Um, well, no, I thought for this time of the morning that's pretty amazing, and as I say, <laughs> psychologically accurate, of course. I, I might be able to do you more of a Brummy accent because by because uh, I'm feeling quite bunged up. Yeah. I might be yeah. might be able to get you as far as uh, you know uh, the West Midlands. But I don't I think can I feel can it get... coming on. So we're sort of Tamworth way, then we are, aren't we? Yeah, <laughs> lovely. Thank you, <laughs> Graham. Uh-huh. Well, I was just going to say the, the debt has now reached 100%, hasn't it? Uh, compared it's going to, to go to 140, they think, in a bit, in about 50 years. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> yeah. If we plow our cards, right? Um, Does it all become meaningless yeah, at so that point? That... And you simply have to do what you have to do. Yeah. The, um... I mean, it's a refusal to acknowledge um, the, the the fact of the the effect of the economy of Brexit on the economy, um, and and the politicians' inability. I mean, they clearly do not know how to reverse Brexit or to make up for their mistake. And so it 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 has to go to court. That is the constitution. Mm. I wonder if it will. <laughs> Do you think Leonidas might be on the cards? I mean, it, 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 uh, it, there would be hints, haven't there, that, that, of greater revolution. Star Wars in Brussels, I think, before a bit before the conference. Uh, I don't think I, I don't think there's a chance of it going to court, and I don't think there's a chance, however much um, Graham and others would like it. I don't think there's any chance of uh, the Labour Party changing its mind on its current stance on Brexit. I think that is settled. What it, what was interesting at the conference this year when Keir Starmer wasn't being covered in spangles, um, and if you were listening to the speeches from him and, um, and from the other uh, members of the Shadow Cabinet, the new Shadow Cabinet unveiled only three weeks before conference, um, it was very obvious that they were talking about a long-term need to turn the country round and that many of the initiatives that will need to be taken to really address some of the problems that have emerged over the last 13 years and by the time of the general election it will be 14 years of the Conservative government um, you you know they're not going to be quick fixes and I don't think the Labour Party wants to go into a general election as the Tories did last time, saying we are going to build 40 new hospitals. Uh, as far as I know, there are no new hospitals that have been built anywhere since December 2019. There have been some bits and pieces of work done to existing hospitals, but they promised 40 new hospitals. So there won't be a pledge for 40 new hospitals. Uh, there will be costed pledges about you know extra uh, Bobby's on the beat, extra money for the 
or a different approach to the National Health Service is very much emerging as um, what is being said. And one of the things that I know they want to do is to deal with the massive, uh, and we had this when Labour arrived in 97, massive backlog for people waiting for treatment. So we've now got people who need treatment who could be um, gainfully employed in the economy but can't go back to work because they're waiting for, you know, for treatment. And, um, you know, if you talk to somebody who's in their late 50s or early 60s who needs a hip replaced, if you don't have your hip replaced, the pain is agonising for a start-off. Secondly, it can actually mean that, depending on what your job is, you literally cannot work. What is the point of that? Why don't we get people in having these operations and then getting them back to work? Because if you're going to talk about growing the economy, which Rachel Reeves clearly is, then you've got to think about very practically about how that happens. So it seems clear to me that that's what the Labour front bench are now starting starting to do. But I also know that um, Rachel Reeves, who I actually do know, uh, <coughs> certainly talking to other Labour MPs, she is absolutely not going to allow people to run around town promising, you know, lots of shiny this or lots of many shiny that. That is just not going to happen. The hips yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah, you know, there is going to, there has got to be a place where the money will come from to create the changes. And we've got to start doing something to address the underlying health of the nation because, you know, all this massive increase in type 2 diabetes in children, which is completely preventable. I mean, type 2 diabetes is preventable in adults. It never used to exist in children. And we just have to face up to the fact that, you know, although life expectancy has massively risen um, over the years, if we don't do something about the underlying health of the nation, that's why the National Health Service is also partly on its knees, is because there's preventable illnesses that people are now starting to suffer from um and i don't think you know enough money has been going into public health services under the conservatives at all because most of it's run by local authorities and local authorities as we have previously discussed are broadly speaking on their knees financially as well so there's a lot of things that will need to be fixed and none of it is going to be fixed overnight um i think i think the indicator the big indicator. I'm not saying that the Building Schools for the Future programme wasn't without problems or fault, but it was one of the first things that George Osborne cancelled in 2010. And no similar programme, Building Schools for the Future, repairing existing schools, anything like that replaced it. And now we find ourselves with this ridiculous situation where schools that are filled with... Um, you know, aero concrete, which might have all many of them might have been dealt yeah, now with. Un- size. Yeah, yeah. Mm. You know, and 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 we didn't. So we've wasted thirteen years, and now we've got um, you know schools with bits of them closed and children in temporary classrooms. Nineteen ninety seven, it was buckets under leaks in classrooms. Twenty twenty four, it's going to be schools with temporary classrooms because there are whole bits of the school that might just fall down. And uh, Malcolm's right; every time Labour has to come in and sort out the mess of the Conservatives. This time, I think the mess comes on the back of COVID, which I think is one of the reasons why we've got the, the huge expenditure that the Tories have undertaken. Um, and I think it's going to be it is going to be a really difficult fiscal period, I think, for Labour.
It strikes me that hip operations are, I believe, these days fairly straightforward. There's just a great deal of them in, in, uh, in background. But um, so one would have thought the the incoming mixed economy, which West Streeting doesn't seems to be quite happy about, as the uh, Central Health Minister could take, skim off some of that and take care of it. On the other hand, the NHS broadly, these public health initiatives, and indeed the state schools, are pretty massive spends, aren't they? And I, I wonder, with all the, you know, the uh, no doubt, the, the due caution of Rachel Reeves, how this is going to play to the electorate as the, the grim facts start to emerge about the scale of what needs to be done. Well, I think the grim... Grim facts emerging um, will probably make people even less likely to want to vote Conservative for the people who, you know, hidden the grim facts for 13 mm. years and or done nothing about them. Yeah, yeah, I did. So, I mean, the optics of how you, you, you say this in a sober manner is, is crucial, I guess, isn't it? Mal, what do you think about that? Uh, selling the prudence, as it were, in terms of the, these big ticket items and how you tackle them. Well, it's it's uncharted territory, really, for for any incoming government to be facing. With the one exception, we you know, clearly, uh, and you you're making comparisons with forty five. The national debt was huge in forty five, but of course, we got there was such a, a an enormous need for renewal right the way across the economy. You then have the post war boom, uh, driven by you know, renewing industry, particularly by house building, massive house building uh, uh, program of the fifties and sixties. Which did result uh, yeah, by the sixties an economy that was that was was booming in the white heat of the technological revolution, as, as Howard Orson put it. But it just you just can't really see a parallel now. We do have a desperate need for for building housing, but uh, you you know in the and Wessel Ward's really quite an interesting example of of how that where before you know up up to the Second World War. It was really characterised by you know large Victorian villas with enormous gardens, some of which had been infilled with 1930s, or what we still call today big houses or decent-sized family uh, houses. Um, and but but uh, very very few people lived there. It was very low population density generally in the, in the ward, and uh, um, and no social housing. The reason why social housing could take off so enormously. And West Hill Ward now has enormous houses. by the LCC, Yeah, but it was because you did have these villas mm. whose life, whose you know, role in life as the homes of uh, extremely rich families with ten or eleven children and and uh, a, a coterie of, of servants, uh, and the gardens available for large garden parties for their for 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 uh, wealthy friends. Um, that role pretty much had disappeared by the by the post-war period. Uh, so you had these very large areas of land which were available uh, with very little by way of decanting people or, or refining people, which were available for social housing. So you got the Edgecombe Hall Estate. Uh, anybody ever goes up to to sort of Southfield? Um, the Edgecombe Hall Estate covers an area called Willow Drive. It's about three hundred and fifty properties built in the gardens of a single big villa called Edgecombe Hall. Yeah. Um, and and you know, that, that, that option just isn't there for us now. There aren't mm. very, very large amounts of, of, 
of land which can be bought relatively cheaply and then built upon because uh, we've done it all. So, so um, I mean, I, I think that Labour is right to look critically again at the green belt and accept that there are areas of green belt that aren't actually all that green or attractive that could be looked at for housing. But uh, wherever you are now, you know, the cost of land to local authorities looking to, to, to build social housing is really pretty uh, prohibitive. Now, in, in Wandsworth and elsewhere, you can build a little bit on your social housing estates by infilling and by repurposing some uh, facilities that aren't, uh, aren't being particularly well used. But nothing like the scale of the of the social housing revolution post war. So you know, well, where we need another one, I suppose, don't we? That's where, where, implications. Yeah, yeah. I mean, where where is the option for a uh, for a uh, demand driven boom uh, of of the sort that, that we had in the two three decades after the Second World War? It's just very difficult to see what a solution could possibly look like. Yeah. I mean, we were under Thatcher going to be a property only democracy, weren't we? I mean, that sort of went somewhere, didn't it? The way the economy uh, progressed. Um, anybody want to come back on that? Well, we are a property only democracy as long as you're over 40. But for home ownership for people under 40 mm. has has become a bit of a sick joke now. It's almost impossible for people to get onto the um, property ladder just because prices have um, are now so high and of course it's almost impossible to get hold of social housing because there's so little of it has been built um, and so much of it has been sold off so the overall stock of social housing has gone down and so much of the stock that was sold off is no longer lived in by the people who um, bought it in the first place um, who've cashed in their chips and maybe have moved on somewhere else and it's now rented out Sometimes back um, so of the council, yes, indeed, yeah. So, so there's no there's leaseholders in council stock as well as mm. people who live in the private rented sector. So there's now the sort of the rise of the private rented sector has been huge, and of course because there's huge demand because people can't afford mortgages and people can't get older social housing, it also means that rents in the private rented sector have gone through the roof as well so things are, things are very difficult for a lot of people and where previously people might have got onto the um, property ladder and then ended up you know buying a flat and then eventually maybe buying a house and so on and so forth and then their mortgage would come to an end um, probably round about the time when they stopped working and retired. Of course, if you if you don't have a mortgage that comes to an end and therefore uh, quite a large chunky expense in your life vanishes as you sort of stop working, so you're you're retired and you don't have a mortgage. But of course, if you're renting, um, you can't actually say to your landlord, "Oh, I've just retired. Do you mind if I just now live?" rent-free for the next um, however long I'm going to live. So there's now starting to be a whole new set of people, 60-plus, who are still renting and have never managed to, you know, get the security of uh, uh, home ownership. Yeah. Yeah. So And that is a really, you know, that's a very difficult position to be in because your your income definitely goes down on retirement. Indeed. Graham, do you see architects stepping up to the plate to... Uh, to to uh, co-engineer a social housing revolution, which is it Starmer seems to be promising. I mean, revolution may be a strong word. Uh, and Mayor Khan has before, uh, prior to that he has um, some merit in his claim that that's making progress. How do you see that panning out? 
And will it be different from last time with, say, the likes of uh, Paulson and T. Down Smith in the former Labour years up, up north? Yeah, well, I think it's, it's a good uh, study on how society works. Mm. Um, you know, building is a very long-term project. So it goes beyond uh, um, parliamentary sessions. So it, it uh, shows the way the constitution is there to uh, to try and overcome the the um, avoidance of the law by by individual parties. And <clears throat> you know the way the constitution works is that it it tells you how you have to do things. And if it's if it's not followed, then things don't work. Well, as and, it were, the, the building starts to creak a bit. Yes. Hmm. Yeah, but it's, that's why the reason it's taken eight hundred years to get to a, a constitution that that we have is that um, it's been learned through bitter experience. And um, you know, the, the the water industry, for instance, or all the the big questions, you know, it, it shows uh, the the consequences of government not acting where they have a duty to act. And the water industry is now, the, the, the crisis is growing because of the lack of, of action by the government. So they, the government haven't been following the constitution and they haven't been following the EU constitution. And so uh, things are going to worse, from worse to worse. And it's very interesting to, to listen to President Biden's speech to um, um, the Nesset um, with Netanyahu, because um, I think it's his, his, his most brilliant speech, uh, because he goes and, and after uh, you know, expressing his sympathy with, a, with the situation, uh, he then uh, arrives and says, you are a Jewish state, but you're also a democracy. And like the United States, you don't live by the rule of terrorists. You live by the rule of law. And when conflicts flare, you live by the law of wars. And that he's saying that if you don't act under the law, then you'll fail. And of course, he has the ability to make them fail. So I, I think, and, and but he says it in the in the best possible way, um, which of course has been ignored by the media. There's far more nuance, as you're definitely pointing out, Graham, uh, to what appear to be the unconditional support for Israel. There is a, 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 a sense, almost an avuncular sense of uh, a word to the wise, isn't there, or otherwise. Um, I was hoping we'd talk about the state of Gaza, of course, thinking about the rebuild. Halliburton did quite rather well. The, the, the George Bush Jr.'s uh, uh, um, uh, cabinet members were being former directors of that uh, organisation <laughs> in the rebuild. But um, right now, the, the place is in a bit of a state. And one particular hospital was attacked. Um, opinions vary as to how many people died and how many bits of people were floating around for quite some time. Um, aid has trickled in. There are 20 trucks. Um, there's a very narrow opening. There's another Rafa crossing. The, 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 the road is being repaired. Um, so it, it's it's slow progress, a massive migration from north to south. How do we read the ruins of this one? Do you agree well, that Biden he, he, was, was making a diplomatic masterstroke there? Yeah, he's, he's set down the, the rules of, of uh, American support of, of uh, Israel. Post hoc, as it were. Yeah, yeah. And and now, uh, if you if you refer to his speech, and then you can judge the actions that are, are being taken. And and he's he's simply stating the constitution. 
And that's, that's the way the Constitution works. It's not an option to follow the law. Okay. <clears throat> a friend of mine has just written a book about the importance of the Ten Commandments. And they took a thousand years to develop, apparently. But they weren't an option. They were, they were the law of God. There's okay, a sense uh, of, as it were, judicial refinement in those uh, administrations that felt there was divine right. Yeah. <laughs> but it, 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 people inter misinterpret the law by saying it's, it's all about what you can't do. You know, the, the law is, is an advice about if you do this, you're going to go wrong. And it's, it's exactly the same with the water industry, Brexit, and all the other problems that, that are housing. That is the, the, the way that politics functions, and this is why it's so important, mm. is that it, the politicians ha have, do not have the ability to deal with Brexit. They've made the biggest mistake yeah. that in, in British but, history, but and they cannot, they cannot deal mm. with how to reverse it. If I could pause and, and you for a moment there, Graham. Yes, thank you. Well, but, um, but they are they are under the law. Yes. Okay. So access to utilities is crucial in, in terms of the laws of war, isn't it? I mean, Leonie, how do you read the situation this week as opposed to last? Well, I think it's uh, it's just very, very, you know, it's very distressing for anybody to look at it. And I have to say, think... I couldn't midweek. I just couldn't face it. No, I know, I know, yeah. I know other people that have said the same to me that they've just been unable to um to to watch the news at all. And actually I've I've not been very well as uh, as I've said. And um so I've actually had a couple of easy. days where I've just yeah. just done well, I've done nothing but sleep. Mm, um good plan. so I <laughs> well, I didn't really plan it, but not able to do anything else but sleep. Mm. Um I, I think the problem you know, everybody would really like there to be a ceasefire and for it all not to be happening. Yeah. I think everybody would much prefer that to be the situation. But the problem is, is that Hamas went into Israel and killed 1,400 people, injured another 4,000, and abducted 200. And none of the 200 have been released i think there's only been a video that i'm aware of of one of them showing someone still alive and there's also been i don't know five or six thousand rockets fired by hamas into israel and there's also been a lot of activity on the northern border of israel by hezbollah so from the point of view of america and the point of view of israel if you ignore what Hamas has done, then you are ignoring Iran deciding to fund the activities of Hamas and Hezbollah because, you know, that is where they get their, their money. And in the case of Hezbollah, I think, arms directly. There are other terrorist groups in other neighbouring countries not far um, away who may also then decide to join in. So you can see why the Israelis would see this as an existential threat, because I think this is the biggest incursion into Israel since 1948. <clears throat> it's the biggest number of casualties. It's the biggest number of um, people injured. Uh, and certainly, I don't think I don't remember there being a hostage situation like this. 
Um, 200 is, a, is an extraordinary number. Um, uh, and some of, and it, of course, it comes at a time when the Israeli government is being led by a man who, well, you know, is, is halfway to court um, for being corrupt. It has formed a government with previously, although now this national unity government, they seem to have sidelined some of the worst elements that were in government with Netanyahu, who were incredibly right wing. And then on the other side, you know, we've got Hamas that suddenly decided to 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 go down this route. So it's almost impossible, I think, for for anyone really to expect the Israelis to to stop. So I think uh, what Joe Biden has done, and it was quite surprising to see the president leave America in the middle of all of this, and then of course the hospital. Uh, was attacked or just hours after he arrived he was just having he was he was having 40 winks wasn't he well i think it probably i think it happened literally as he was getting on Ah, i think you're right yes he was getting on to air force one he Mm. would have had the reports as he flew over last minute rewrite yeah but um you know whether it was a an actual airstrike or whether it was a missile being launched from a nearby uh, cemetery that yeah. mm. you know that that fell down on the hospital or whatever it was, um, I, you know I've got no idea because obviously I'm not there. I haven't. Well, we're I haven't... told the impact uh, sort of uh, suggests initially <laughs> that the, the latter is unlikely, but of course possible. <laughs> but then it also you know that the the impact of uh, a rocket that was still full of fuel mm. would have led would have led to the fire. So it seems like the you know the firing. The misfiring from a nearby cemetery seems more likely. I have no idea. I mean, I think the people who do the analysis of open source intelligence um, will eventually have looked at all of it and come forward and, and give some sort of answer, if they ever can. I mean, the most definitive answer would be to have people went in, go in there and actually examine things. But it's an actual active war zone, and mm. I can't see Hamas well. Hamas are not going to welcome, um, you know, members of the international community coming in and poking around in the hospital to have a look at, you know, what may or may not happen. So, I wonder. I mean, it's it's incredibly difficult, and I hmm. think, but I the actually whether think, the Israelis shoot at them while they're trying to do it, I suppose they've killed quite well, a few journalists and and uh, ambulance workers. But anyway, yeah. I think I think Biden still showing up. And then making that speech, and he's he's never invited Netanyahu to America, of course. I don't think he's a huge fan, but he still turned up and said, we're standing next to you. But then that's what he said in public. What he said in private, I think, is probably quite different. And you, there are some threads of it in his speech where he was basically saying, we made some mistakes after 9-11, don't go there. And then is also saying to them, and get that southern border open with Egypt to get some relief coming in as well. You know, Rafa has got to be opened. Relief must come in. So I think he's probably been privately quite tough with the Israelis, as well as being very publicly supportive. And because America has that relationship with Israel, you know, it was right for him to come. He may have been possibly the only world leader who could have said that effectively. Now, whether that will stay the hand of the Israeli generals a bit and so that they don't go completely berserk. I mean, this whole thing about, you know, we're going to wipe Hamas off the face of the earth. Well, you can only do that by killing half of the Palestinians who are in the same place as 
where Hamas are hiding. I mean, it, it, you know, next yeah. ne- next week next week could be awful, absolutely mm-hmm. awful. And George, there's already, George, yes. you know, there's already more Palestinians of a civilian Palestinians have died more of them have now died than the fourteen hundred mm-hmm. um, civilian is- Israelis who died, and there are more, and, yeah, and there yeah. are more more people injured now in um, Gaza than were injured in Israel. So you know, I just I want it to stop, but I can also see, I can also see why the Israelis, you know, feel that they must respond because otherwise it just strengthens the hand of Iran, Hamas, and Hezbollah. Mm. Very balanced analysis, thank you, Leonie. Well, how, how do you read how things have developed, and do you think Biden played a, a as it were, a deaf blinder of a speech there in terms of the snooker sort of move of the result? Um... The thing that really struck me this week was the reports of the um, damage to the hospital mm. um, and how that story has emerged. And I, to, to me, it kind of it, it encapsulates what I find difficult about the whole thing. Um, the The initial claims were that it was an Israeli strike on a hospital which had killed five hundred people, and the the normal suspects, the the Corbynites, and I'm afraid the BBC. Uh, immediately trot out an un, an uncritical uh, uh, um, come out really accepting that yeah. claim from Hamas straight away, mm-hmm. not offering any criticism to it. Then the pictures start to emerge of the of the site, and from what I could see, it seems to be a small crater, maybe a couple of meters across, in a car park. Some burnt out cars, and clearly there will have been casualties associated with that. But all of the buildings around seem to be entirely intact, and indeed the cars that are further than about ten meters away from this uh, from from this point uh, seem there. Which and 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 you think, well, this just you know, having seen the dreadful devastation in in Israel and Gaza and Ukraine and and many other places of what actually happens when a missile strikes a building. Um, you don't just get uh, uh, literally a handful of of burnt-out cars uh, from it, most of which were clearly burnt out, not blasted. There was three of them which looked like they'd been results of blast. So that point starts, so this doesn't look like missile strike. It might be an incendiary bomb or or something of that nature. Mm. And then footage starts to emerge of a, a set of Gaza rockets being fired and one of them seeming to fall out of the sky and a an audio tape of uh, supposedly of Hamas people talking to each other about how and accepting responsibility for it but the the problem is that absolutely every bit of that could have been faked from start to finish um, because of the uh, you know the advances that we don't always see but but how there was a, I think, an audio of, of Keir Starmer circulating around Labour Party conference, which was entirely fictional, entirely put together, but extraordinarily, you know, you would have accepted at face value if you weren't. Uh, well, firstly, what he was saying was so ridiculous, but 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 uh, if you weren't being told that this was in done, and so I don't know how anybody can really come to a a view of what's going on in the region there when there are very heavy incentives on both sides to fabricate very convincing looking evidence in quotation marks um, about it. And, and and the BBC has now apologised in, in a sort of rather mealy-mouthed way for immediately jumping on the uh, accepting Hamas's 
explanation without uh, without uh, critically challenging it. Um, and it's, yeah, frankly, what we expect from 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 Corbyn and his uh, his group. But uh, on the other side, those who are say, say, who are equally certain that it came from the Hamas side, it, it seems to me, are falling into the same trap. But most of what's happening in that region now, I don't think we're ever going to know what's the case because the propaganda battle and the misinformation battle has got. I mean, that was always the case with war, of course, and you know. Uh, whether it's 1984 you're reading or or just you know recognizing misinformation in war the old the old statement the first casualty of war is 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 the truth is is very is very opposite mm. but but the tools that are available now to tell lies with in terms of fabricating uh, uh information or hacking email accounts whatever it happens to be and then of course even if what you've done is right you claim the other side hacked you and uh uh, so I, I don't know. It's it's going to be increasingly difficult. I mean, it's, my broad take on this is that a ceasefire is complete pie in the sky because uh, Hamas do seem, you know, and this I don't think this is disputed, but Hamas have been saying that they exploited, you know, they they pretended for some time that they were moving towards a rapprochement in order to uh, build up their capacity for this kind of strike. I, I don't see how anybody. For a moment, would trust a uh, Hamas uh, uh, ceasefire as being anything but uh, uh, an opportunity to 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 uh, ultimately to kill more Jews. Um, so I don't know where you go from there in that situation. I suspect that, um, that you know, and it is the case. You know, even leaving the hospital aside, the plight of the uh, people in Gaza is going to be. Horrendous. It's very interesting how Egypt, because Gaza has got, hasn't just got a border with Israel, it's got a border with Egypt to the south, and it's got a sea border, obviously it's on the coast. So there are exit routes that, that are available if, if other countries were to, and other Arab countries were to coordinate uh, efforts. But uh, it's been very interesting that Egypt has pretty much point blank refused to take any refugees, and indeed, there's no capacity. Uh, right? Yeah, mm. until very recently, it's refused mm. to allow humanitarian aid into Gaza through the through the uh, fairly narrow uh, mm. shared border. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, regionally speaking, Lord Alf Dubs is proposing a a, a version, I suppose, and probably different specific refinements to uh, what he helped put together for um, uh, Ukrainian families to come over to the UK in terms of the the, the draft. Um, can you see that gaining traction? I mean, it is going to be on a fairly massive scale, isn't it? And will people perceive that we might be taking on a disproportionate share of this? Will other countries also respond in kind? To yeah, well, settling uh, the, 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 just changing the subject and going off onto other issues. Hmm. Uh, is is exactly how the propaganda works. Was I doing that, Graham? I'm the, sorry. Hmm. No, well, I, I sat and watched Wednesday television on Al Jazeera hmm. as the news came out, and you had simultaneous uh, UN resolution, uh, the speech of Biden in Israel, and the Al Jazeera reporting of events. And the, the hitting of the... the the new evidence of who dropped the bomb was being played out on the news. And you could tell which uh, presenter had the information or who had listened to Biden's speech and who hadn't. 
and and the commentaries followed exactly which part was propaganda and which part was uh, reporting of facts. And it, but it's extremely difficult to do that. And it's all on the hoof, isn't it? Fact, you literally you're interpreting is, live pictures as we've done. And this these. is what this yeah. is the brilliance mm. of of uh, uh, Biden's speech mm. is he told the Israelis, and he said. Um, what sets us apart from terrorists is, is that we believe in the fundamental dignity of, dignity of every human life. Israeli, Palestinian, Arabs, Jews, Muslims, Christians, everyone. <coughs> and you can't give what makes what you are, you can't give that up. If you give that up, then the terrorist and <coughs> win. And we can never, never let them win. That was pretty statesmanlike too, Graham, if I may say so. Um, well, the point, the point is that this, this is the advantage of the law. It's been worked out over hundreds of years, right? Mm. So it's phraseology of what you must do, what you may do, and what you can't do is explicitly expressed and written <laughs> down. And it's, it's, it, it, you have to fo follow the law. You, you are mm. under the law. And this is exactly what Netanyahu was trying to be above the law. And as Nobel Hoari said, this is the biggest crisis for Israel for 3,000 years. I mean, by common consensus, he's sort of electorally blown it, hasn't he, in terms of uh, reacting as he did? Yeah. Yeah. No, every, every, even the commentaries, uh, they're all saying, mm. as soon as he's gone, there's a fantastic yeah. clip of a surgeon in a hospital uh, bawling out a politician who dared to come to the hospital to to uh, commiserate with the patients and said, how dare you come? You know, what after what you've done, how dare you come to the hospital? The uh, the regular tropes don't play. And so one wonders post-war, what kind of issue we'll be looking at? Well, it's all down to the Israeli politics and it's yeah. down to the, the ruling party, whether the which party follows the law and which doesn't. And your implication there, I guess, is that there'll be more of an incentive to do so because people will twig the fact that because that's not been happening, things have gone pear-shaped. Well, I mean, take the analogy of the football match. You know, hmm. why, when someone fouls, it's not the person who's fouled who, who, who dishes out the, the, the penalty. It's a referee. And everyone knows that... that and you, every match you watch, you see the the the, the uh, person who's been fouled, their team restraining the 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 fouled person, the wronged person, and they they have to be restrained from. The, of course, the ref is nobody's friend. I mean, they have to be impartial, but very often they get blamed for stuff, don't they? I was in, uh, having a bus well, of course, a couple of days uh, ago. The, yeah, the referee's job was that. a really difficult one. Mm. But uh, Biden was being a referee, okay, and he was coming and saying, "These are the conditions. We are supplying you arms, and you can use them, but you cannot go above the law." You one one atrocity does not enable another one or forgive another one. That's the law of war. 
we've not heard that much lately. We've heard the the uh, the, the expression, but not having it spelled out, I thought so eloquently. Um, so well, this any... is what the the, the media yeah. are refusing to spell out the law, hmm. and well, and um, this is the where the propaganda of um, Al Jazeera, which can be seen as propaganda if if you take that into account of of what the constitution of um, Qatar is. Yeah, yeah I mean, they've had the Russia and China over for a, a, a meeting about this, haven't they? Which is, you know, curious and curious. Huh? And and of um, mm. of Putin, this is what Putin does. He, he's, mm. of course, he's above the law. Yeah. Mm. And, and, well, and, and 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 it's the same for Ukraine as for Israel. The, the, the Americans they give the arms to Ukraine, but they put conditions that they cannot do certain things. They cannot go above the law. And they cannot go above the laws of war. As with uh, Israel, to some extent, the guys of Netanyahu, corruption is still an issue, isn't it? As, as uh, Zelensky has well, recently that, found. And that's why, that's why yeah. people are blaming, they're blaming Netanyahu for the tragedy. He made a huge military mistake in relying entirely on technology, which mm. failed. He's been outwitted. He's been outwitted by by Hamas. Yeah. Um, well, and he's, just... he's trying to cover up. Okay, but he cannot commit atrocities and not be blamed for it. And, and as you say, Biden seems to have subtly hinted at that uh, reality check there. Uh, well, the he, hasn't subtly, is... he hasn't subtly hinted. He said it in the most diplomatic way he possibly could. That's a better way of putting and, it. And that is the brilliance of his speech. Was he totally sympathised with Israel and their actions and their positions, and he met the families and the victims, and he he did his political acts, okay, mm. but he actually said and he gave a speech, and of course that speech now is on the table, right? It can be referred to, and it can be held to. But I bet he said a lot more in private. That's exactly. what I reckon. Exactly. He, of course. He Look for have, the speech bubbles. Yeah. He do we think? Said a do, lot we, more do we think finally that, that uh, as uh, I mentioned earlier on, Alf Dubs has mm. planned to um, to suggest that we take in uh, Palestinian refugees, as we have Ukrainians, with mixed success economically for their prospects? Does that is that going to gain traction? Well, I would I would like to think uh, that we would have that level of compassion. But, um, you know, given that we've got frontline politicians, including the Home Secretary, um, prancing around, sticking people on boats and offering to send people to Rwanda and saying that we can't possibly take anybody at any time, uh, pretty much uh, making it really difficult for people to come to this country, I can't see the current government um, listening to Alf Dobbs on this, I'm afraid. They are going to have to go somewhere, I guess, aren't they? Um, uh, unless it literally is sort of carpet bombing. Mal, uh, uh, what's your feeling about uh, the prospect of the, of the refugee crisis there? And of course, the humanitarian crisis at the moment. Is that going to get sorted? Well, one of the really, you know, depressing things from a from British perspective has been the yeah, the the enormous um, appearance on our streets of of people who are openly saying "kill all Jews" and um, uh, arguing for the destruction of the state of of Israel, and 
the idea of of large numbers of refugees from Gaza have, have sort of readily radicalized uh, um, uh, inevitably in this case Muslim uh, um, uh, refugees joining this uh, body I mean the the attacks on on Jewish people in London are really very distressing and of course um, that young and, Palestinian and, lad was knifed in Chicago was six years old the other day yeah yeah it did. and and then it it, it you know, you get revenge attacks against innocent Muslims, and and the whole you know the whole thing becomes uh, just becomes even more driven by a hatred rather than by any kind of strategic thought of how do we get to a point where we can start to uh, uh, to, to to get something out of all of this, and we're so far away from that at the moment. Um, I I you know I think this I didn't know. That there were so many people in London who were perfectly happy to come out and march and and openly call for, uh, attack. There was one Jewish person who was close to that was physically attacked, and the police had to protect him. And who are who who hold yeah. this sort of Mosley strikes again? Yeah, hmm. deeply ingrained uh, anti-Semitism, which will yeah, as I say, sadly then outbreak to being an equally horrendous. Uh, Anti-Muslim, yeah, Muslimophobia, mm. um, and uh, so 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 it's a real dilemma for the West as to what, as to whether you know the extent to which Western countries would be comfortable with with accepting. And you know, I I don't know the extent to which Hamas is is accepted within the West Bank. Clearly, in uh, oh sorry, in, in Gaza, clearly in the West Bank is the Palestinian Authority. And relations between Israel and the Palestinian Authority seem to have been pretty civilized for, for quite a long time, and the West Bank hasn't been the the focus of of, mm. of fears of this nature for for, for a while. The, the impotence of Abbas, I think, is quite apparent. Impotence of Abbas in the midst of this uh, polyglot mixture of a, of a, of a, of a, a offensive collective is is often debated. I think, isn't it? But but with with Hamas, they I mean they did they won an election. They then abolished elections and it's clear from the way they're acting i mean it, it's it is quite extraordinary they're still able to afford to fire bombs at and, and missiles at israel when they don't when they claim they don't have the resources to feed or to or to provide water for their own people it's a it's an extraordinary it, it's very illustrative, I think. It's that uh, peculiar arrangement they have with the Israelis, isn't it? To supply with terms and conditions attached. And, you know, a, a bit that being chipped away at by various Israeli incursions before the war. Curious times. Um, thank you all very much indeed. Um, let's, let's hope for some seeds of optimism next time around. Have a great weekend. Cheers. Yeah. Thank yeah, you, Andy. Bye. Bye. Get well soon, Leonie. Bye. Oh, thank As you. Thank said, you. We must keep pursuing peace. We must indeed. Let's yeah. do it. Absolutely.